0: Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about vexing canon elements. And the one that sticks out for me... And what what it boils down to is that sometimes they'll do things in a show um, for... Um, for ratings or just for their own amusement because they think it's funny. Hello, Dead Air, I'm talking to you. Um, when it's actually what they're doing is something that really destroys characterization. Um, like Elizabeth Weir's reaction to um, Duranda blowing up was galling. It was supposed to be funny that, you know, Rodney was being called on the carpet and screamed at. In her office for everybody to listen to. But what it actually demonstrated was is that Elizabeth Weir was childish, unprofessional, and completely incapable of emotional control. And I was like, I was I was done. I didn't like her character anyway because she acted like a mom. But after that, I was like, no. And yeah. who like in the middle of dead air when they when they turn that radio off i thought to myself oh they're gonna write them off the show i i could see why you would make that uh make that have that conclusion except they didn't nope and these are the kind of elements that we're talking about element or that we want to talk about tonight there's elements that um sometimes get written into a show a movie um a book series that are meant to be small things that have humongous ripples for characterization and for plot. And you're like, I really don't think that diary was a horcrux when you wrote it, Joanne. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we know it wasn't. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> anyways well harry potter is rife with almost i mean the, the canon is rife with decisions that well we've talked about that they're 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 to make harry's adventure possible but what they actually do is reflect negatively on the character of like everybody around harry um and you know she didn't intend it that way she know you know she didn't mean for every adult in the wizarding world to be an asshole but and yet that's the implication I also honestly don't think she meant to write Dumbledore as manipulative as he turns out to be. I think that she wanted to create a character like Gandalf, um, one that readers would meet with affection. um, But the older and more mature her readers got, the more they saw through her plot device turned Dumbledore into a monster. And that's one of the things that can happen when you focus too much on one thing. If you're, if you're trying to get the laugh and, it, and you just don't stop to think about what the situation says about your character, or you're trying to give your character an opportunity to um, have a big confrontation or something. And it actually what you've done now has made them an asshole or, or, or worse abusive. Um, and so writers do that all the time. Certainly fan fiction writers do it, but we certainly model that after the things we see in Canon. It's like, do we do we have to? Does it have to be that way? Um, I mean, in the Stargate issue, as Stargate Atlantis, I early on we we talked about um, Weir's decision to not go after Sumner right away. Um, I mean, I mean, you have to think they did weren't aware of, of they weren't or weren't aware of how people would take that how anybody in the military would take that. Did they have somebody in the military even consulting on this show? You have to wonder. It's like this is the first episode. Now, early on in SG-1, they had an Air Force consultant. But eventually SG-1 went so far off the rails, as far as regulations were concerned, that the Air Force took a step back. I said, no. <laughs> no, we're done. No, dog, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> so they really they couldn't hang with their crazy. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't hang with the crazy. Here's the thing about Dumbledore flying to from Scotland to London. That is the only single time in the entire book where anybody implies that Albus Dumbledore got on a broom the only time That's it. And also, it's just an implication. You don't actually know he did it. As you go get in the corner. It is too early for that kind of joke. Yeah, that was That was a little out there. <laughs> okay. Um How dumbledore flying on a broom come up? Did I miss a comment? I don't think oh. we had seen a port key yet. But. Right. Right. I did but, miss a comment. But I don't. When's the first time we heard of the flu? The flu and the apparition. Not apparition. We didn't hear about apparition too much later. Um. But I feel I mean, like somebody came out of the fireplace in the leaky cauldron when Harry was in there the first time. yeah, I, I thought I thought it was book two was the first time we saw flu, the flu in use. okay. Um, but it may but the thing is she introduced brooms in book one. So of course he's gonna fl- fly on the me- method of magical transportation. You can tell she was pantsing shit. <laughs> no she plots in excel she has proof <laughs> she's got something and you know but it's like it does give us something to, the problem is with Harry Potter then right is it, it does give you it does give this kinds of things do give fans things to work with right um dead air how many how many fix have come out of dead air and boxed in I mean I remember when boxed in aired I had um I was pretty new to actually even watching the show much less. No, I've been watching NCIS longer than that. But I was pretty new to the fandom when Boxed In aired. And um, Boxed In aired. And I was sitting there kind of goggling at Boxed In. um, At the way it ended. You know, with everybody knowing. Just that that little... There were a lot of things in that episode that were like, holy shit, really? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like half the fucking episode was holy shit really <laughs> right so and i thought did they really mean for ziva who's supposed to be known for her you know prowess with you know combat Did they really mean for her not to have hit anybody in that fight did they really was it really intentional they had her open up open fire in, in a in a closed box so you know i'm sitting there and then they get to the end and it was like wow and i thought immediately i'm like there's gonna be a bunch of fic and within, the, by the time I got up the next day, there were tags for <laughs> for there were tags for boxed in already, and I was like, "Oh boy!" And then every time they had an episode like that, you could just kind of feel it like there's going to be a tag for this in the morning. Um, Requiem was that way. Um, uh, just basically any episode where Tony was treated like shit, it was like, "Oh boy, Phantom's going to blow up in the morning." But when Dead Air came on, I was like. Well, the fandom should mm-hmm. blow up, but it could be that a bunch of people are just going to stop watching the show. Because <laughs> at that point in my life, when Dead Air was on, I had a friend who was a police officer, and she found NCIS ridiculous, but she still enjoyed it. And we would get together, and that's one of the things we did every week was watch NCIS together. And that episode aired, and she was just like staring at the she's just staring at the screen, and she says, "I'm done. I rage quit. <laughs> rage quit." Um, I think that what happened with dead air and why people were like they kind of stumbled and there was like tags were short for a couple of and then it was like oh hell no what (laughs) because there were never any ramifications Like, like like fandom was waiting for there to be ramifications right except we get two three episodes out from dead air and there are still no consequences nothing and that's when Phantom realized there were never going to be any consequences. And they had treated this procedural breach that could have gotten Tony Dinozo murdered like a fucking joke. And then the dead air tag exploded. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's been almost 10 years. And it's still one of the most popular. It's become almost like a subgenre for NCIS for dead air tags. It's, it's practically a trope. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, dead air, yeah, consequences for dead air, I would say is a trope in that fandom. Um, but it's just, but I can, it's been a decade. People are still pissed off about that. Almost, it's been nine years. Um, so it's like you just, I remember like after it was, I was like, what? <sighs> How? Or when um how the um, fuck was that funny? It wasn't funny. And you know they did it for a laugh because they did like to make Tony the butt of jokes. Um but it just isn't funny. And often when they made Tony the butt of their jokes, it wasn't funny. Like when Rennie Grant when framed very briefly framed Tony um for murder and you had there's a there's a moment where Ziva and McGee are getting gathering evidence and um there was just some kind of comment, like, who would frame Tony for murder? And I think th- the other person says, well, who wouldn't? And I was like, okay, that's just unamusing. Because there's a dead person, and your colleague is being framed for it. So, you know, but whatever. Um, but also, con- similarly, in uh, for things that just kind of make you go, what were they thinking when they had Danny banging Rachel in hmm. Hawaii 5 I rage quit the fandom over that ship. I stopped watching the show. If they wanted to destroy my slash pairing in Hawaii 5 0, they accomplished it. Because Danny does not deserve Steve. Because he's a hoe. Mm-hmm. It. And again, this was something they did for for what? shock value and ratings, but all it did was destroy the character of Danny for me. Yeah. And sometimes when you make a choice as a writer to to do something that um maybe serves your plot but not your character. You have to make a sacrifice. So what are you going to sacrifice? You're going to sacrifice your plot element or your characterization. Now for me personally, I will always dump a plot element before I will, um, um, before I'll make a character sacrifice. Yeah. But a lot of these, well, shows clearly, clearly the shows that don't have these issues, clearly they're, I, I have to. I have to assume whoever is responsible for keeping their characterization bible going is that they're choosing not to sacrifice characterization for plot. Um, but those sh- shows are few and far between. They, for the most part, these days, it's like they have characters doing things that are wildly out of character all the time. And oh, I was like, "Why is no one talking?" But I realized my um, my chat room wasn't scrolling. Oh. Um so it's like it, and that's most of the time I would say 90% of the things that just really get us really irritated are where they do things that are just wildly inconsistent for the character or they take a character in a direction that the the audience hates. Um Yeah, Babylon 5 was an example of they so they had a tight they had a tight series bible for Cap- Babylon Five. Same thing for um, Farscape. But um, mm-hmm. but 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 Babylon Five, they had a captain of the ship, um, and I don't mean the actor. I mean the the writer, the creator. He he wasn't the only one writing on the show, but he kept the direction. He kept the characterization, um, and he didn't let them. Go completely off the rails. Because there was somebody at the head of it. That's what you need with a series like Babylon 5. Or Farscape. or That's a really complicated and rich world building. Mm -hmm. Someone's got to be in charge. And say this is the way this is gonna go. And no, you can't do that because it violates our characterization that we've established so far. No, you can't do, and the thing is, writers should be able to go back and throw an idea out and come up with something else. But I swear, it's like, something like, are you guys short on ideas over there or something? Why do you keep doing this? And so like on NCIS, some of, sometimes it wasn't a case of plot over character, but it's like, they figured out what lane they thought the fans liked the character in. And then they just kept doubling down on the traits that they thought the fans liked in a character. And, and so then turned all of their character characters into caricatures rather. And that, and that starts to fall really flat. It's like, why are you doing that? Um, It's sort of like, you know, like Gibbs became more and more of a bastard over the season. And, um, He's way more um, uncommunicative the further the series goes on, and he he becomes outright abusive. Um, and and they and to me that was a, a, an example of them kind of giving into the character, turning him into a caricature where he there's no depth to his character outside of his bad behavior. Um, they did the same thing with Abby. They. They just kept dialing up this childishness with her until there was just nothing left i think really hers was the worst yeah she was very hard to deal with and relate to as a character um i mean she's older than tony i think so yeah but even if she's if she might even. it's a little bit hard to tell Exactly. I'm not sure we ever got an exact age on Abby, but considering how long she'd been in her job and her level of qualifications, she can't... She has to be very close to him in age. So... Unless she went to school, you know, college when she was 12. And they never implied that she was a child genius. So... Yeah. If you look at a character like... um Penelope Garcia, who's just as dynamic as Abby was at the start. Um, a little outlandish, um, occasionally a little childish, um, but fun. Mm-hmm. She knows when to buckle down and do the job. She knows when to take it seriously. Um, she grew and changed um, as Criminal Minds expanded. I um, mean, we, we learned a lot about her. We learned that she volunteered with crime victims. We learned that she liked... Um, Old movies and dressing up to go see them, and she had this really interesting um, uh, life before the FBI. And uh, she, you know, she, and she had a life outside of the FBI. And she, and she didn't stop growing. And she had far less screen time than Abby. If you think yeah. about it, Abby had a lot of screen time, and. So Garcia had less room to grow and still managed to go three or four times more in the ten years that Criminal Minds was on versus the twenty years that NCIS has been on nineteen twenty. Uh, seventeen or eighteen, I think. Seventeen, eighteen. It's been a fun, It's been a long fucking time. Yeah, it has been. The hair is the least of the issues with Abby. Honestly, the hair is is the least of it. Uh, it's just the least of it. I mean, honestly, you can't look at any forensic show, you know, any forensics and any crime procedural show and take it remotely seriously. So that's honestly, on the on the whole of it, not even an issue, because they all do it. None of them have realistic forensics. We're talking about her character, her her develop her lack of development as a character, not. You know, the shenanigans they do in forensics on every single show. The only thing that, to me, spoke a little bit to character, because the forensics are crazy, but it was the unlocked lab where she mostly works with her back to the door that's unlocked and the evidence sitting on the table behind her. I mean, I've seen a lot of bad procedure in in uh, these shows. But considering the level of training that she's supposed to have, that almost did speak to character. Like, how come nobody cares that there's evidence sitting behind her and that the the lab's unlocked? It always just really threw me. Every time that situation would occur, I'd be like, um, well, okay. But mostly with her, it was definitely... She went from fun and quirky to weird, childish, um... She had severe psychological issues I mean it, the, the way they wrote her they, um, um, they wrote her with somebody with abandonment issues um, With severe um, Attachment issues um, And just just <clears throat> Honestly um, As fucked up mentally as she was She wouldn't have qualified for the clearance She would have needed to have her job There's no way she'd have passed a psych A psych eval not the way they wrote her. No, and then they talk about there's episodes where they reference her not being able to keep secrets, and it's like, then how could she possibly have sec- any kind of security clearance? And then also, and and also when you talk about in in terms of Abby's arc, that ep- you remember that did you see that episode where those they came in and somebody pretend came in, pretended they're from like a government or something? Guys, help me out with what the deep who, who it actually was came in, and they basically flattered her into going with them. Um, And um, she flattered them, and, and she was helping them finish working on some kind of weapon or something? It was in a private lab. She was, like, recruited. And they were trying to get her, they were trying to offer her a job or something. Now, there was something where she thought she was, because they came to her lab, and they had, like, forged credentials. And she thought she was doing it they basically lied to her, but she basically went with them and helped them almost do something very dangerous. I don't even remember what it was she almost did. I fit. I fuck. Like I remember this. Maybe I'm remembering the details wrong. I, I remember her being um in a different kind of lab and Gibbs coming there. Was Gibbs there? Well, they eventually had to figure out where Abby was. Um, I don't. I just remember at the time thinking, how. She, she, how can she just go off? I mean, they did it to give drama to her situation and to have an Abby focused episode where, and it seems like all the, most of the Abby focused episodes was Abby in peril. Um, What's really interesting about this is that these people with these fake credentials got into the Navy yard. Then they got into NCIS through security Then they walked out of NCIS through security with a high-value employee and then out the gate of the Navy Yard. And no one had anything to say about this? So this plot turns practically everybody that has any kind of contact with them into an incompetent they're 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 all incompetent. Mm-hmm. I cannot remember what episode that was or what exactly the context was. I just thought it was so bizarre how gullible she was, and I'm pretty sure she wouldn't actually be allowed to. Uh, that if 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 it was somebody from, I don't remember if, it was somebody, if it was somebody from the government, it should have come through her director. Um. But. Nobody's allowed to just, you know, people from, you know, other agencies aren't allowed to just come in and recruit her. It just, it's just, it was crazy cakes. And she should have known all of that. And I'm pretty sure, even if it was a private research project, I'm pretty sure she's not actually allowed to just take off and work on whatever she wants to while she's under contract with the government. And actually, honestly, also while she's on the job. Right. She didn't tell anybody she was leaving the building. She just, she just left. That's not how jobs work, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. The only way Abby would have been let out of the building outside of her work hours was during lunch um, or with the team if she had to go to the scene for something. But why would she? It was rare for her to leave the lab. Why did no one say, hey, you know, what are you doing with our friend? What are you doing with Gibbs as forensic scientist? Right? Where because are you going? you want to be the one to lose Gibbs's forensic scientist? And it did I seem wouldn't. to be Gibbs's forensic scientist, too. So it's kind of like, okay. I can't even get a mental beat on... I'm trying to, like, looking at the episode thing, trying to figure out what episode or season that was. Timepiece has this episode called Toxic... Abby joins a top-secret project, but soon discovers that nothing is what it seems. While the NCIS team investigates the discovery of Marine's body, and soon realizes it might be connected to what Abby's working on, and that Abby might be in great danger. It was in season six. So Vance is Vance is new to the job at that point. So. Again, this is where you're, the, where they're they're sacrificing characterization, not only for Abby but also for like you know, dude. Background characters are now, now you know I don't believe that. We also know this to be true in, in later episodes that the NCIS building and the Navy Yard are not secure. <laughs> they're very not secure, which makes it even weirder that she leaves evidence sitting out. At all, I mean, eventually the the building gets bombed, so we know that you know that some security is an issue, uh, which doesn't make any sense because it's in the fucking Navy Yard, right? And it, now, in of course, in real life, at some point during the run of the show, the 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 headquarters for NCIS moved to Quantico. Um, but it used to be in the Navy Yard. But yeah, that episode where it gets blown up, the guy just parks a car right in the right, right. It pulls right at P parks, brings an SUV right up to the door, and and so yeah, doesn't work that but way. But again, it was about. So, since we're mentioning the bomb thing, and this 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 also speaks to characterization, and not in a good way. Except that this is a real life situation. I worked for this company once, and somebody did, it and it was like a. there was a big drive at the front of the building right there's a big circular drive and people would come in they the the most common use for the circular drive people dropping off people for work right um or taxis dropping off people coming from meetings or whatever it was like a six-story building and um you know just complete glass front right it's kind of l-shaped building and for the most part the executives in sat on the windows, right? Especially on floors three through six. It's that's where the, all the executives sat was along those windows. And the back side of the building faced a fabric, a, a, a plant, a manufacturing plant, right? So nobody wanted to sit over there. So somebody comes in, they do a risk, or risk analysis of the building and they say that, you know, if somebody were to pull a vehicle with a bomb in it up to the front of the building that they'd, you'd wipe out your executive staff, right? And so they pers- tried to. The first, their first suggestion was to try to get their executive staff to move to the other side of the building to face the the fabric of the plant, right, instead of the the, the circular drive with all the landscaping and stuff. That was their solution to this threat of a, a this bomb threat situation. Was to get Let the executives. None of them moved. <laughs> well, not only did they not want to move, but all of the employees went. Wait a minute, so the rest of us can get blown up? <laughs> You because right. there had been there had been some issues with bomb threats right they're like so it's okay for the rest of us to get blown up but it's not okay for for the executives to get blown up who do you think does the work around here um so what they did is they turned the whole thing into like a decorative park and closed the circle drive down <laughs> but you know that's that's a real life kind of example but in in TV, if that were in a TV show, you'd think, oh my God, those people don't care about their employees, right? You would think these risk risk analysis people are assholes, and that the executives are assholes. And you know what? You'd be right. All of them are assholes. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. an asshole. One of the things I see um, in in Star Trek is uh, it's just a side thing about location, is that um, sometimes um, even if they're not in a relationship, Spock and Kirk will be housed in the same part of the ship. Like all the officers will be in the same part of the ship. Y'all, that's not a good idea. You don't want all your officers sleeping in the same part of the ship. <laughs> <laughs> um, they would actually I mean, they would literally be all on one side of the ship. So, you might have an officer's deck. But it doesn't make sense for them to be all on the same side of the ship. Like, if you're doing a saucer section, like that, you should spread your officers around, maybe on the same two or three decks, depending on how many officers you got, how big your ship is. But they should not all be like together, and your senior staff should not all be together either. Because you don't want some Klingon battle cruiser coming up beside your ship and blowing out your entire command deck or your command officers because they're all taking a nap or whatever Kirk might be doing down there. (laughs) Right, <laughs> and if you got your captain and your first officer hooking up, the third should be on the other side of the ship. <laughs> just saying, you need to, you're gonna have to sleep. You're gonna have to move quarters because you're too close to us. Well, and the thing is, but <laughs> in canon, in canon, they their quarters were right next to each other, right? I think so. Yeah. So they already needed that. The, they already needed. To move but forward. whenever I see it, Vic, I'm like, dude, that's just not a good idea. <laughs> It's just not logistically a good idea. No. It's like putting windows in castles. It wasn't a good idea. A lot of times when you see like really old castles, they have a really narrow window. Um, those narrow windows weren't for aesthetics, they were for archers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Yeah, arrow slits. Um, and so, whenever you, I'm reading a historical romance novel, and somebody's leaning out or or leaning up against a window sill and looking out a big picture window in their turret or whatever, I'm thinking about myself. You dumb hussy. <laughs> That's how that works. <laughs> Number one, there's, I mean, unless they've got somebody making glass in their village, it is unlikely they would get glass all the way up there (laughs) intact. Yeah. Well, it can't be all the officers, though. No, because there wouldn't be enough room for all the officers to be in one section. That's just ridiculous. Um, But honestly, by the time we're in space, I would hope they'd figure out that that's just not a good fucking idea. Especially in a vehicle like the Enterprise that could lose pressure or get a hole blown in it. And they would compartmentalize with bulkheads, right? Well, if you've got all your officers on one side of the fucking ship in the same bulkhead, it's not going to do you any damn good. Okay, I'd like Starfleet to be a little bit smarter about it. So, let's see what other canons have really vexing elements. They all they all have some of the vexing elements. Well, in The Hobbit, the vexing element is all the dick. Um, other than you know that they killed the Durins at the end. I mean, yeah, that. There wasn't a ton to annoy me in that canon, other than it's so male-heavy, and um and, have your and, morality and... lesson, Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that they ki- I didn't killed everyone. need that.
1: Yeah, I like that, Ellie. Yeah, a... They
0: prove Ellie says that she doesn't think they prove that all of them are male. I agree. But what I would also say is that Queenie is right. That there was a lot of dick in those books for nobody to actually get dick. He didn't get paid by the word for the Hobbit. He got paid yeah. by the word for the Lord of the Rings. Which is why, to me, why there's a distinctly different... The Hobbit is much tighter. Oh, Lady Holder is letting us know exactly where we should aim. That's not, that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not say that out loud. <laughs> <sighs> but other than that i mean that's one of the canons the hobbit doesn't give me a lot to, uh, didn't, didn't give me a lot to complain complain about for the most part um except for all the death at the end except for all the death right you get to the end and you're like what the actual fuck <laughs> <laughs> i think that actually could be the first time i said what the fuck as a kid <laughs> yeah. what the fuck did everybody just die is that what happened Although to be honest, when I read the book, um, when I was younger, the 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 movies and um, Richard Armitage's portrayal of Thorin kind of kind of brought, gave the character some depth to me. I didn't like Thorin in the book. No, he was a dick, and he's a dick in the movie. But it, but we don't mind it as much. He's not as much of a dick to me. But I, you know, it could just be because he's pretty. Um, it makes up for a lot. I wouldn't know about that as I, I haven't, I don't have, I don't have proof it. of that. I've not seen that penis. and um, I think the actually, I think of the, of the fandoms I'm involved in, the shows I watch, I, um, uh, the, the, show, the, the ones with the most vexing canon to me is Harry Potter and NCIS. There's, There's so, much so many re- things. In both of them there's so many things to be annoyed about in both it's kind of like well i got i got fodder for ages but that does give us a lot to write about um it's just often then we wind up focusing very intently on um those things that were wrong in canon um as opposed to just story. You know what I mean? Um, not that I don't mind a good... Not that I don't like a good fix-it. We know I do. We live for a fix-it. We stand with fix-it. Some shows need all the fix-it. Some shows need fix-it more than others. Others, you just really want to immerse yourself in the utter depravity of it. Hello, Hannibal. Um Did you see what I posted to you earlier? Y'all... I was trying to make and those of you who've not watched, Hannibal, you're not gonna get this and and that's okay. Well, not really, but it's okay. What um, did you post to me earlier? I was trying to make an omelet. Oh, about your Scramble. <laughs> I was trying to make an omelet, but I've but the flip didn't work and it ended up making it ended up breaking and I got pissed off. So I just scrambled it all up, put my sausage in it, and put some gouda cheese on top, melted a little bit. It was really good. But then I sat down at my table at my desk with it and I said, Oh my god, I've got a protein scramble. <laughs> yeah. She had a protein scramble. And you know, and the thing is, there are some things in the Hannibal Canon that kind of Annoying, but there's really not that much. I think that they did a really good job of even the things that annoyed me. I could understand it in in care with from the perspective of the character. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah, I mean Hannibal did some terrible things, but it was perfectly within his character to have done them. Right. So they they may really frustrate me, but it doesn't mean it's out of cure. The actors, you know, you have to give it to the to everybody involved with Hannibal. They they went all in.
1: They're like, okay, again, yeah,
0: we're gonna do this shit. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do it. Their cinematographer was like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, and the um,
1: whoever, you want who- this to
0: get creepy? We can get creepy. Get me a stag. <laughs> It's gonna get creepy in here. <laughs> Can you imagine whoever they had as their sh- their food consultant to be like, okay, we need dishes realistically that you could hide human meat in. <laughs> the guy's like, going, "What did I just sign up for?" Uh, you know, honestly, as as beautiful as the food was in that show, that dude had to been like, "Hell yeah, <laughs> right? I am all in." Really, irritate. I'm kind of ench- enchanted by that. I I want to read the book that the chef wrote that did Hannibal's food. This is beautiful. Um. Oh my god. You, see, this is not something I think you should have googled. I I think maybe you should have you know. Oh, it is okay. It's called Feeding Hannibal: A Connoisseur's Cookbook. And it is a collection of easy to follow recipes inspired by the show and created by its food stylist Janice Poon. Go girl. each recipe but really, Adam, it, everybody went all in on it, and it it made for a beautiful, grotesque, um amazing show. It, it just it's and even when Hannibal's being a monster, you're like, Oh, he doesn't mean it. He means it, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. He can he can help he could help it. He just doesn't want to. <laughs> Hannibal just be Hannibal will. You need to deal with it. <laughs> he loves you. <laughs> he aches for you. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Queen, you could come out of the corner for that one. She won't be out of the corner for long. No, she won't. Queenie says, don't hate the player, hate the pigs. (laughs) But no, I mean, you look at Harry Potter and the Horcruxes are a big one, right? Because you know that element wasn't there to begin with. I'm not entirely sure the prophecy was there to begin with. No. But um But also I think she wrote a book and she wrote it she she wrote it for her kids and then it exploded. You know, she got it she after many, 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 many rejections. And don't you know the editors who turned down Harry Potter are still kicking their own asses right now? Um they should be. She got a deal. And so suddenly, Harry Potter was a phenomenon, and she had to write six more books because she foolishly put Harry Potter in a school that had seven years. <laughs> it's like, damn it. Why didn't I start this book when he was 14? What's wrong with me? Right? <laughs> the Hogwarts could have been high school. Honestly, you know, if it took that long for Deathly Hallow, if you, if you managed to get through and not be furious by the end of the Order of the Phoenix, you're a masochist, Shadow. Mm. <laughs> Did you know? <laughs> uh, really? Yeah, I, I kind of actually honestly, I, I started having a problem with it in the third book. But by the fifth book, I was like, no, 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 no. This doesn't work for me. Because the reason I had an issue with the third book was because um, I felt the whole thing with the dementors and stuff. And the unjust um, imprisonment of Sirius Black in that awful prison where they, you know, these things that eat people's souls and suck out everything. This (laughs) is their prison. These are their prison guards. I just felt like it was just so... Ugly? I read all seven books. It was ugly, though. It was just deeply ugly. I mean, I I got through them all. But, I mean, I just started feeling like it was not kid-appropriate at the third book. On the other hand, but in retrospect, like, I thought that she, I assumed, when I started reading Harry Potter books, I assumed that she intended for... Us to assume that Harry was an abused child. So when she came out and said that Harry wasn't abused. But she then later retracted. But when she said he wasn't an abused child. I was like. Huh. I'm going to need somebody to go check on your kids. So. What is going on? What is. So her interpretation. Does that mean she doesn't want us to think that. Petunia and Vernon are monsters? Because if Harry wasn't abused. We do. We do. You know, they, but I mean, honestly, I think she just missed. She just she just lost the plot on every single adult in that story. Well, Shadow, the 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 killing of Barty or the kissing of Barty Crouch Jr. in the fourth book um, is honestly no different than the attempted kiss on Sirius Black. It's just Fudge got to go, finally got to follow through on killing an escaped convict. Who had not been sentenced to death. Neither Barty Custard Jr. or Sirius were ever sentenced to death. But the moment they got out of Azkaban, Fudge ordered them killed. Or the moment that that Barty was revealed, he was killed. Um, If they had known he was out and free, they would have been hunting him down to kill him. Because apparently, breaking out of Azkaban is a death sentence. And that's like an atrocity when you know that Sirius Black was put into Azkaban without a trial. Yeah. Did Barty have a trial, Susan? I mean, we see a memory of him in the the Wizgamote from Dumbledore. We see a memory of that. But what are we really seeing? We see him being accused, maybe. We see him screaming at his father and being a crazy person. But did he actually have a trial? I mean, I always like to tell you that Bellatrix Lestrange got a trial. But maybe she did, maybe she didn't. I like to point it out. Like, it's a thing. Like, you know, how could she get a fucking trial but Sirius Black didn't? Because that what? What? It's implied that Barty Cutts Jr. had a trial. Um, But it's not explicitly said. It's just an assumption. Well, we were also told that Sirius Black was sentenced. Harry was told repeatedly that Sirius Black had been sentenced to life in prison. Everybody knew that to be true. No, they said he was sentenced. Because it was a surprise that he apparently to a lot of people that he'd never gotten to trial. So they assumed he was sentenced. Well, in terms of there's there's a lot of like different things going on in the chat room about this. But what stood out is I don't think she actually put a ton of thought into the wizarding justice system. And even into their form of government, she just filled in details that were, helped her plot, helped the, the plot that she was writing. And they didn't, I don't think she intended. No. Huh? They didn't gel. No, they didn't gel. It was like their, all these parts were moving and none of them were working together. Yeah, it, it was just, it was very discordant. And... have to think that wasn't intentional. That she didn't mean for the justice system to look as utterly corrupt as it was. I think she wanted you to think that Sirius Black was an aberration. In terms Except of before we even meet Sirius Black, we know that it's possible to be sent to Azkaban merely because the minister wants you to be sent there. Right. When they sent um, Hagrid and Hagrid there. Yeah. Um, and so there's all these little things that just kind of. Like, well, and do you think she meant for a lot of pe- a lot of the readers to interpret that Molly Weasley was deliberately trying to deceive Harry because of her? This is early in the first book, right? This woman who has been to Hogwarts how many times? Somehow doesn't know where the platform is. She, she was att- seven years herself. Bill had already graduated, so that's seven more years, right? So probably she's been there probably twenty times at least. Yeah, because Charlie graduated too. Just for drop off, she's been there twenty times, right? And plus pickup. So she suddenly she doesn't remember where the platform is. And the thing is, she was coming up with a way for Harry to be able to figure out where the platform was. And you could tell us what was going on if you think about it. Like, what was she doing? She was trying to give a way for Harry to figure out where the platform is. Fine except that it comes across as um, disingenuous, right? We assume that Molly's doing up to something because it just doesn't make sense that somebody who's been to on that platform 40 times, basically plus Christmas holidays, 50, 60 times, doesn't know where it is. Okay, you could say that she's prompting her young child, Jenny specifically, on the route to Hogwarts because Jenny's going to get to go next year. Except this is the wife (laughs) of the man who studies muggles and all this stuff. And she is traipsing through King's Cross, fussing about muggles, standing out as much as possible With a brood of redheaded children talking about a platform that no one can see. Loudly. Well, and also, I do not for a second believe that purebloods go through the muggle train station to get to the platform. They come by flu or apparition. They have to they have to. So, considering that we see the Weasleys using the flu, maybe that another interpretation is she didn't know what the freaking platform number was because she'd never been there before. <laughs> she'd never actually used it from that side. Right. And that she was there to intercept Harry. I mean, we we the thing is, you don't have to take it that way. You could take it, you know, kind of at face value that she just forgot, or that she was prompting her kid to see if her kid remembered or whatever. Um, but I don't think there's, you know, all of those kids have been to the even Jenny, who was ten, the first time they go to the, you know, ten and that she's probably been to the platform ten times herself. And I just don't think that if if they've if they had actually entered there. At platform drop and pick offs, yeah. I don't. I don't think that she would actually have ever, because she would have always accompanied her mother, or her parents, to go drop her siblings off. I just don't believe that they would have forgotten. So, um, it comes. Yeah, this across, isn't the first time Jenny's been on the platform. It can't be, because there's no way they left her at home alone while well, they took the other kids to the school. She always went with them. That had to be. She always. I imagine that it, she, Molly and Arthur always took all the kids everywhere they went. So, well, yet, yeah, yes, it was a plot device because it was a, her way of, ha- of, you know, because it was actually her way of dealing with the, of the other bad plot device that she had done. Which let's back up a plot device: sending Hagrid to introduce Harry to the Wizarding world. Stupid idea! It doesn't actually make any sense. Um, now, this is a plot device I could actually explain. Here's the thing that she's done here. She's mirrored Hagrid's involvement in Harry's life. Hagrid takes Harry Potter to Privet Drive. Hagrid goes and picks Harry Potter up and brings him back to the magical world. In book seven, when Harry Potter is leaving Privet Drive for the very last time, he leaves on the motorcycle that he arrived on. That's I get the plot device. I get it's just why not it just a good doesn't one. make sense. No, it's not a good one. I, I get, I get, <laughs> totally get why, but it doesn't make any It's not sending the groundskeeper who actually wasn't supposed to be using magic and then he then assaulted muggles with magic. Um, to, Which to, is probably why he's not allowed to use magic, <laughs> right? Beyond to the in, chamber. To introduce, um, harry to the wizarding world and then he basically doesn't remember anything he's supposed to tell harry um and he's distracted by this other errand for dumbledore i mean i just don't believe for a second so nobody believes that the person who routinely goes and gets muggle-born children and talks to them about the wizarding world is hagrid right it's probably minerva or snape or flitwick or one of the other teachers right probably one of the heads of house does this well, and we know that in canon that Dumbledore did it at one time when he was the deputy for Dippet. He did it because he went to see Tom Riddle. Right. So sending the groundskeeper who can't actually use magic and explain things to anybody um to do to do this obviously doesn't it seems like it's ridiculous, right? But she's she did it because she needed to give Harry a position of ignorance about the wizarding world. And potentially uh, somebody who isn't going to, inter- to interfere with his living situation. I mean, for whatever reason, she had her, her reasons. Again, this is, a, this is a case of where she's thinking about it from the perspective of, of her, of this kid's adventure rather than a situation that actually makes sense from a grown up, Right. Cause it just doesn't gel. So you've got this, this thing she's going to give Harry this ignorance for he doesn't know things. Right. So he's going to meet k- people by happenstance. And so her next, so, she, so because of the whole Haggard thing, Harry doesn't actually know how to get onto the platform. So, then she has to do this next contrived thing, which is a pure blood wizarding family who has been to, the, who's been to the platform at least 40 or 50 times, if not more, if you count the holidays. Um, <laughs> right? walking, through, walking through the muggle section, talking about where is platform nine and three quarters again? Which platform is it? I, come on. All these muggles are in my way. <laughs> right? so in so then you kind of like so then what what are you left to think of? so this is this is sacrificing characterization because we're left to think that molly was doing that on purpose to get harry's attention so then you have to ask well if she's doing it so you start following pulling the thread right well if she's doing it on purpose to get harry's attention so that the first person harry meets is ron or whatever to guide him on the platforms it means they know that he's not going to know how to get on the platform which means that Hagrid was instructed not to tell him how to get on the platform and then you're like but why (laughs) and you just so that Dumbledore can manipulate him and make sure he ends up best friends with somebody that he has control of the other side of it is is that Hagrid realized he didn't tell harry potter what the platform was and dumbledore sends a message to molly weasley um that harry potter doesn't know how to get on the train because hagrid didn't do his job and minerva is lecturing me about sending hagrid when she was going to do it and could you please make sure harry potter gets on the train thank you (laughs) which is the kindest interpretation possible right and also if the but in that interpretation, then you have to go. If that's if that was a situation, well then why doesn't why didn't Minerva then have a sit down with Harry immediately and say, it should one of the teachers should have been coming to, to meet you. I mean, I think you probably have some unanswered questions. Because they have to have stuff they go over with people who don't know anything about the wizarding world. And she has to be thinking like Hagrid probably didn't do any of that. If he didn't even tell them how to get to the school, right? He probably didn't do anything else. So it, it is, so you're left to infer something negative about some character, right? So you got these things that are being used to achieve if they're all plot devices to achieve Harry's adventure. But they say really awful things when you start looking at well what does this mean? Well why? Why would that be? And you pull the thread and you you are you can reasonably in, infer something very negative and manipul- manipulative about door and about molly honestly because the more straightforward thing would be for molly to go oh goodness gracious well we'll just go pick him up and take him to the platform with us not let's go you know through the Muggle part of king's cross station yelling at the top of our lungs about where's platform nine and three quarters okay Someone says in the chat room they might have assumed Petunia knew how to get, get to get on the train. That's entirely possible that she would have that she would have known that. But here's the thing. One of the first things that Hagrid learns is that the Dursleys have told Harry Potter nothing about the magical world. He is, they have spent they have spent time and money running from his Hogwarts letter. Which Hagrid has tried to deliver several hundred times. So for him to assume that after all of that... Now see, in the movie... There's no time um, between... Hagrid takes him shopping and then takes him to King's Cross. But, or, or leaves him to get on the train. And Harry gets on the train. But in the book... Um, they go shopping on his birthday, and then he has to go home to Privet Drive, and he's there for a month. All right. And then they take him to King's Cross and dump him off and wish him good luck. Ha, ha, ha. Fuck you. And they leave. Right? So, for Hagrid to assume that that they would be willing to tell Harry Potter anything about the magical world after he cursed their son is worse than him Forgetting or not telling Harry Potter because Doubledore ordered him to. That's actually worse. It's all, it's just, it's so butt ugly. Um, and so these are, these are, these are choices. These are, what we call vexing cal- canon elements very early on. And so it's really easy from the very beginning of the canon to start to infer negative things about literally every adult. Every adult. It's like, wow, you people are all assholes. I don't like any of you. And honestly, unless you make Dumbledore so twisted and fucked up that he's actually um, cursing most of the staff at Hogwarts, they're all terrible. Um, The fact that Severus Snape is allowed to get away with what he gets away with and no teacher goes against Dumbledore and says, you know what, actually, we're not okay with this jerk verbally abusing the children in our care. I don't care what he did during the war. And honestly, the rationale that the rationale for it makes no sense. Because the because rationale Dumbledore apparently defended Snape and said he was a spy for the light in public. Right. Well, but even if you take even if even if you take take that off the table, right? The argument is, is that he, he has a role to play, right? As 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 a, as a s for, for for Voldemort, right? That he has to pretend to be a death eater in the school well that then reflects negatively on on Dumbledore because why the fuck would he have hire hire a legitimate Death Eater which means that actually if, if Snape is being undercover for Voldemort he should be trying to ingratiate himself with Dumbledore and therefore be a good teacher so that he doesn't lose his position to enable him to spy so a Snape trying to maintain his cover for Voldemort which is the the goal, right? Ostensibly, as his triple agent status, should be trying to be a nice teacher who's not going to lose his job. Otherwise he gets fired. The fact that he didn't get fired when he behaved atrociously should have been a red flag for Voldemort. That Snape was not working for him. Well, he did scrape the bottom of the incest barrel, so, you know... I mean, it's just when I see that, when I see that whole argument of Snape had a role to play for Voldemort, so he could, that's not how you, if he's being a spy for Voldemort, he should be behaving, he should be behaving the exact opposite. The way he behaved was somebody who was a spy for Dumbledore, which should have made Voldemort incredibly suspicious. But it didn't because, well, we know, can I guess him, him and Voldemort and common sense, I mean, him not, him not having any actually isn't that big of a shock. The only shocking part is that he wasn't raised in the wizarding world. But he did manage to, before he graduated um, Hogwarts, lose all of his common sense. Mm-hmm. That would make sense if Dumbledore appeared to be under duress to have Severus and his employee employee. To say that Lucius Malfoy is responsible for Severus Snape being in the school. The thing is is that Dumbledore indulged him repeatedly in his terrible behavior and never called him on it. um, Allowed him to abuse students. Never said a word. Um, So, no. That doesn't fly for me. Well, but didn't they say don't don't both dumbledore and snape basically some paraphrasing of this say at some point in, that snape has a role to play mhm yeah <laughs> which is crazy so, cakes right <laughs> it's crazy cakes cuz that means he's his role he's playing is loud and proud death eater which says what about dumbledore <laughs> and there's one line where he basically tells harry potter that he has to be the adult because severus snape can't be <laughs> I've always found that whole, and you see it crop up in fan fiction, right? About the role he has to play. And I'm like, the role he is playing is Death Eater. (laughs) Why in the world would that be a good cover? Because the thing is, it doesn't say anything bad about Snape, actually. It says something terrible about Dumbledore. But that's what she did over and over again. She said terrible things about Dumbledore. Over and over and over, her plot devices were reflected very negatively on him. I mean, by the end of the book, you're led, I mean, your only choice is to believe that Dumbledore kept Harry Potter abused, misinformed, and uneducated so he would kill himself. Mm-hmm. Or so that he would sacrifice himself. So he would step in, so he would let Voldemort kill him without a fight. Because, um, Nobody taught him how to fight. You don't have to train a martyr. Nope. Was that her intent? I honestly don't think so. I don't think that was her intent either. Um, but this—this this is that whole issue of, you know, your your story comes off differently than you than you intend it to. Um. Because you, you, you put something in your, in your plot that wreaks havoc with your, you know, wreaks havoc with characterization. And then the audience is left kind of head tilting going. What the fuck was that? Yeah. What the fuck was that? I didn't know what to think of Dumbledore. But by the end of the Order of the Phoenix, I knew um, that um, Harry's, that no part, the only part of Harry that mattered was the prophecy. His mental, emotional, and physical safety um, paled for Dumbledore. Um, This is when we find out that he knew that the Darsley's home would be a dark place for Harry Potter. Um, This is when we find out that Harry Potter is a weapon. He took one of the most devastating moments in Harry Potter's life. And finally answered the question he asked him his first year. So on the very night, he lost basically the, the, the godfather he wanted to be his daddy. He wanted a father. Sirius Black was the one was the closest he was going to get. And he watched him murdered in front of him and he gets back, he gets back to Hogwarts and Dumbledore says, Oh, hey, you know that dark lord has been trying to kill you for, you know, I don't know, your whole fucking life. You're prophesied to stand us as his equal, and maybe you can even defeat him. We're counting on you. Not that not that I had done anything to en- enable you to um actually fill that role, but we're counting on you. So what was the point of that? What What was the point? See, that no. thing where he says I didn't tell you earlier because I, I wanted you to enjoy your childhood in that abusive home I left you in? That, that, I, home knew. that I knew that would be dark? Mm-hmm. The dark years for you? Your dark childhood years? I wanted you to enjoy your dark childhood years. it's not funny right aren't aren't you grateful aren't you grateful am i not merciful (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) (laughs) troll oh to be perfectly honest shadow i don't think harry or ron were qualified to be pre um Prefect or whatever it is. What is it? Prefect? Prefect. Prefect. Uh neither one of them were qualified to be prefect. It should have been Neville. <laughs> yeah. You don't take the two kids responsible for the most breaches and probably school rules outside of the twins, and we make them prefects. It just doesn't Since make sense. Since the Marauders. <laughs> right? It's like really. He was. Which was that th- that speaks to favoritism, but but then you know, R- Rebus kind of implied that he never got caught <laughs> that it was serious, and James and were always getting caught doing stupid shit. No, you don't have to be um head boy um, and I'm a a prefect, prefect. whatever what did you, what'd you say it was again because I've already forgotten prefect. Yeah, the head boy is just the 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 male student with the highest grades. So, but the issues with Harry Potter they start at the beginning. They start early, early in the canon, where you start questioning. You know, unless you're t- unless you're eight, you know, which is character- what the series was written for. I mean, right. Well, at least the first book was written for that age group. Um, I mean, I was reading. Um. Order of the Phoenix, not Order of the Phoenix, I was reading uh, Prisoner of Azkaban to my sister when she was like eight or nine years old. And I was like, this is way too old for you. And, you know, by the time Order of the Phoenix came out, I was like, actually, I think the Order of Phoenix might have already been out, but I just we weren't there yet. Or maybe it had just come out or something. But I was like, this is way too old for you. Um, and it was. It was entirely inappropriate. I think that a lot of YA books just get darker and darker and darker. Yeah. I heard my sister being pissed because I bought my nephew um, Maze Runner. Um, But she didn't blink when I bought him Hunger Games. And I was like, have you read Hunger Games? Well, no. I said, it's about a bunch of kids who get thrown into a, a hunt what are they hunting? Each other. And the one that comes out on top wins the Hunger Games. They take starving children out of their homes and then broadcast the game for sport where children kill each other. They kill each other and the the one who lives is, is given a life of privilege and the rest of them just die. And she has a problem with the maze runner? She didn't know what Hunger Games was about. And that's not even just dis- to top the this- to discuss- discussion we had about Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the body autonomy issues in Harry Potter are a nightmare. Um It's like okay, yeah, the jelly legs jinx seems like it's funny, kids. Um, because I had this conversation with my sister, it seems like it's funny, but that's actually like assault, you know, robbing somebody of their free will. Uh, it actually is not all that amusing. I'm riding a um sentinel and guide AU where Harry and Hermione are sentinel and guide, um, and um, in their first year, um, and um. One of the things that's uh, that kind of popped up in the writing was is that Hermione has she's the guide and she has an immense problem with cheering charms um, and all kinds of emotional behavior modification charms because she she says they're you know well they're a violation of your of your mind. Um, and um, she finds it she finds it appalling. Um, so, but yeah, I could see that. Um, but these are, I think it's, I think it's good to question these things, um, when they appear, when they occur. And cause also it, it, it gets you looking critically at characterization. It's like, would this character realistically do that? What does it say about... Sorry, I just smacked my microphone. Um, what does it say? I mean, I like McGonagall for the most part, but honestly, the, the, the implications for her in canon aren't any better than they are anybody else. Um, I think she's one of the, because she's a more likable character, she's one of the more interesting ones to write, actually like getting involved in Harry Potter's life and and doing something good for him. But in canon, she was a hot mess too. Like just telling Harry to keep his um his uh, head, head down. And that was just really detestable. I wanted to crawl into the book and whoop everybody's ass at that point. hmm I don't think her reaction in the first book was out of line. I mean, just imagine you're going about doing your thing. And a couple of 11-year-olds come up to you. Talk to you about something they should know nothing about. Um, that you believe. To be perfectly secure. Because because Dumbledore has told you. That it's perfectly secure. And you don't have anything to worry about. And here are these children. Who already have a history. (laughs) Of doing terrible things in your school. (laughs) They don't know how to follow the rules. So I don't see her reaction. In book one out of space out of pace not 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 there but my issue with her reaction is what's implied right she knows there's a cerberus in a school of children she knows that dumbledore has brought this artifact that should not be there that is a lure for voldemort i mean not a lure. literally she probably doesn't think she he's trying to attract voldemort but i mean that it would be something alluring to him and he's hiding it behind deadly traps that could kill any kid that stumbles upon Upon them, and it's behind a, a, a first year locking charm or a fourth year locking charm or whatever. That doesn't actually say very good things about her because she was aware of all of it, and so was Flitwick, and so was Hagrid, and so was Quirrell, because he provided patrol. And Snape. And Snape. I-, I imagine all the teachers knew about the traps and knew about the Cerberus, and so it's like, what the fuck, y'all? Seriously, what the fuck? So either you have to assume they're all terrible, incompetent, um, irrational creatures who don't know how to, who don't understand consequences, or they're all being cursed the fuck out of by Dumbledore. Right. It's like, are there stupidity and loyalty charms on the fucking building? I think so, probably, Yes. Yeah. Why did those three, four kids end up in the forest with the one dude who can't do magic looking for something that's killing unicorns? At night. Plot device. Right. Is it a good one? No. no. But it was written for eight year olds who'd find it fascinating. They probably also like the three headed dog, too. Yeah, probably. But the thing is, is that Harry Potter as a series grew, I think probably with Rowling's children, um, and got more mature and more adult. Her audience, you know, she took her audience on a journey, right, Uh, through, um, through to adulthood. So by the time you get to the last book, you're face to face with something really, really stupid dark that ends with harry potter's suicide well sort of i mean there's some well, stuff after th- that and then you know that whole participation su- trophy epilogue thing the suicide is <laughs> you know the thing is the fact that he uh, uh, you know sacrificed himself for others isn't even the troubling part it's that he was groomed to do that yeah that he he was never given because the thing is if if Dumbledore really believed that Harry was their their savior their their best chance or whatever if he really believed all of that why wouldn't he have been training Harry all along why wouldn't he have been why would he have been sheltering him which is what he said he was doing trying to give him a childhood why would he be doing that instead of trying to make him because he he knows all along that Harry's a target for Voldemort he know he's done that all along so why isn't he doing more um to protect him he just relied on because he believed that Harry Potter was a horcrux and that Voldemort could not be defeated while all the horcruxes were um in existence and so in order for um Voldemort to be defeated um Harry Potter had to die yeah, he did. And that was that. the power that he knew not. But what's really interesting in, in this rationale is that later on, um, in one of her interviews, Rowling said that Harry Potter was not, in fact, a Horcrux. That he was, at most, a pseudo Horcrux. Because of the lack of proper. Well, uh, did. Did she? Is that the witch she meant when she wrote it, or did somebody just point out that there had been no preparation ritual? Well, apparently she, in, you know, in the editing phase for um, *Deathly Hallows*, the editor asked her if she would um, insert the Horcrux ritual into the book, and she said no because it was disgusting. So, <clears throat> and I think that in order to c- create a proper Horcrux ritual, it would be actually, it would actually be disgusting. I've, I've thought about it. I'm not going to talk about it, but I've thought about it, like what it would take, what the elements would be, Um and I don't think it's just a murder, because if it was, then Horcruxes would be would be lousy on the ground, which means right, which means that also that, uh, in my opinion, that the uh, the death of um, that first death of what's her face, Money Myrtle. Could she couldn't mm-hmm. have been she couldn't have made a horcrux. He didn't make a core horcrux with her death. No, probably not. Although Doesn't make sense. It, but the diary is a horcrux and is the first horcrux. Um, the thing is, is that Riddle didn't even kill Myrtle. Oh. the, the basilisk killed um, Myrtle. So how could that possibly have been part of a horcrux ritual? It couldn't have been, and yet you see it written it that way all the time, right? He made the diary with Myrtle's death, but that doesn't make any sense. He, um, he killed. But what it does imply is that he did that skanky ass, dark ass ritual when he was a teenager. Yeah, I mean, he definitely did it sometime during his sixth or seventh year. No, Harry didn't host part of Voldemort's soul. He was never a Horcrux. In canon. What it was. Was an echo of the killing curse. They were connected through the curse. And through prophecy. That's why he's a pseudo Horcrux. But he never actually had a piece of Voldemort. In his head. In his scar. Per Rowling. But he didn't. Do the ritual. In the nursery. He just. Killed Lily and then he killed Harry. Where he tried to kill Harry and the curse backlashed, so there was no Horcrux ritual. So therefore, there's no there was no Horcrux actually created in canon, and you can do whatever the hell you want with it in fan fiction, of course. But well, I've seen it written, and I can't say that doesn't make that doesn't that because she doesn't give any detail about the ritual. Right? Is like that the um that the ritual is around and i've seen this in many times is that the ritual is around the creation of the vessel that it's it's to it's to it's to kind of make whatever it does to the soul to make it possible to rip it apart and then the the ritual the other part of the ritual is to pre- pre- prepare the vessel and so that that stuff was done before he went there and but the thing is if that was the case if that was the case, if he went there with with the vessel that he planned to put the Horcrux in, and he went there prepared, and all he needed to do was a significant murder, a significant murder was the only thing that needed to happen, why wasn't James' death what caused the Horcrux to be created? Right. Why, would it have been, why would it have been Harry? It would have been the first person he killed, right? The first After completing person- the vessel, yeah, I would say so. So if that's the way that goes, is that it, it, the first person he kills after finishing the vessel would have to be James. So it doesn't actually make sense that the Horcrux... that, that it would have been created. Slughorn told um, Tom Riddle about Horcruxes. And Slughorn was the head of house for Slytherin. There's no way... There's no... I don't think it actually should, Rowling ever says with... Tom Riddle asked Slughorn about Horcruxes first or if Slughorn told or mentioned Horcruxes to Tom Riddle in passing and then Tom Riddle brings it up again. But considering that he was going to school with Several people. Yeah. You see that conversation in the pensive. Where Tom Riddle asks Slughorn about Horcruxes. But that is not to say that that is the first conversation they ever had about Horcruxes. That's just the one that Slughorn gives Harry. Well I've not watched the movies because they're not. Accurate to the books. I watched the first twenty minutes of the first book and movie, and I was like, "Nope, I'm done. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> it's not. No movie is ever accurate to the book. But it just, it just hit on. It hit. It diverged at something that was a sticking point for you because otherwise yes. you would never be able to watch a movie adaptation of a book because they are never accurate. And it's actually a really big divergence for me because in the book Harry meets Draco Malfoy on the train. And the only person, persons who see Harry refuse to shake Draco's hand, are Ron and Crab, and what's the other kid's name? Goyle. Um, Goyle. In the movie, it happens in front of all of the first years. So you take a moment between char- th- these characters that's actually semi-private. They create a lot of hostility, right? And then you take it, and you put it in front of all of their peers. And Harry Potter is rejecting Draco Malfoy in front of every single first year. But the animosity between them doesn't seem to get any bigger, does it? It stays pretty much the same. Private embarrassment versus public embarrassment. And considering Draco Malfoy's upbringing and his belief in his own status, um, honestly, he should have been outright plotting Harry Potter's murder. It should have drastically changed the intensity of the hostility between them immensely. And so after I I watched, I just couldn't get past it. I couldn't get past it. I was like, I just because that's a that's huge fucking ripple. That's a huge. But I knew they weren't going to address it, so it just again consequences and characterization, and plot choices. I see why they did it to kind of shorten it. You know. To make the movie more palatable um to uh tighten the pace, but that is one scene that they should have left on the train, yeah, but well back to Tom riddle um and considering who he was going the, the kinds of families that he would have been going to school with, he would have been going to school with um the older blacks uh probably Arcturus not Arcturus um oh Orion, yeah Orion uh yeah yeah cuz Riddle was born in the born in the 40s right and Arcturus was born the turn of the century so yeah yeah it probably Orion um Alberta. um probably Bellatrix's is parents um um Abraxas Malfoy's parents not Abraxas himself but Um, I have, I I don't remember if I. So, if at some point he's convinced them that he's actually, um, and he's proved his blood, um, and that he's convinced all these morons that. (laughs) And we know he did convince them. That's the thing. I mean, you, that's not even speculation. He literally convinced these people that he was the heir of Slytherin um, and that he had, the, uh, that the ministry had forced him to live as a muggle and that he was actually a pureblood um, because he was a parcel mouth and because his father, um, um, because his mother was a gaunt, right? And so he did have the blood. But he wasn't a pureblood, but he convinced those morons he was. And so imagine them 15, 16 years old. Um, and they have they have the literal heir of Slytherin, a parcel mouth in their house, in their Hogwarts house. And he's dark and he's powerful and he's actually really good looking. And He wants to know um, all these dark magic things. Let's go home to the library and see what we can find. And then they bring back whatever they can find. They they find the darkest shit they got in their parents' library. And they bring it to school for Tom Riddle to impress him. Because he's the heir of Slytherin. And he's a hot, sexy parcel mouth who's being mistreated and suppressed by the ministry and fuck the ministry. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can see it. You you can see that happening. So, the whole horcrux thing and, and Riddle finding out about horcruxes is whatever. <laughs> That'd be easy to to write in. This is the thing that you know, when you're if you if you start off cuz sometimes you do, you sit down, you write something and you're like don't maybe you don't intend to write more than what you wrote you just intend to write this first story or you got an idea for one or two stories and it um yeah so he you you you, you do the thing right, that totally threw me off so you do the thing and sometimes, sometimes the chat room is a boon and sometimes it's the bane of my existence <laughs> anyway um but sometimes you you do something and you you don't realize you're going to get seven books somebody's gonna want you to write seven books right um and at some point it's it's good you know i think that there's there's a hesitance sometimes to sit down and go to and to maybe to admit to your writerly friends i have no idea what i'm doing i i I have no idea where I'm going with this. I don't have any idea what I'm doing with the series. It doesn't matter whether it's fan fiction or original fiction, right? It's, it's like, I don't have any idea what I'm doing, but I think I want to write more, but I I don't really have a plan. And get somebody to give you, you know, help you come up with a better idea than Horcruxes. <laughs> or okay. horror crushes, Everything you want to say it. Or Horcruxes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Which was the thing that just melted my brain there for a few seconds. <laughs> you you have to think she didn't say some of these words out loud, right? She just cause sometimes you make up a word and you never bother to figure out how to say it. I actually had to look up the word crucio, crucio. Crucio. Yeah. Um the other day. And um I was looking at the definition of it. I don't know why it never occurred to me. Crucio. Um, I don't know why it never occurred to me that its root is um, related to cru- crucifixion. Ew, and that's why it's a pain curse. It's actually the fucking crucifixion. Ew. Yeah. Could you go? Could you go back to not realizing stuff? That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was an ancient. <laughs> You're welcome, Edie. Sharing is caring. We did, uh, yeah, we, we did, we did talk about something that Jesus was, in, was Jesus had ascended. No, actually, he really did ascend, though, right? <laughs> in the Bible, Jesus actually ascends. Well, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll Sorry. behave. I'll behave. I'll behave. For a few minutes anyway. Um, <laughs> so let's go back to bitching about NCIS. NCIS. in Okay. Like. Can we talk about. Kate. All right. A lot of times Kate was given lines. For comedic. Purposes that made her look like a fucking monster. And sometimes they gave her situations that turned her into like a fucking monster. Like when she photoshopped that picture of Tony into a into a situation that made him look gay and then and then and then sent it to Gibbs. Because that's smart To insinuate another agent is gay in a testosterone-filled environment during a time period when that shit could get him killed. Mm Mm-hmm. Abby helped her with that, yeah. Or when she called um, Voss a he-she. Because, yeah, let's make the Catholic girl also transphobic. That'll be funny. So is well. Also, it is only made her transphobic, but made her homophobic too. The implication being that Tony should be disgusted for having kissed a man, when really Tony probably was disgusted because he kissed the person that killed his friend. Yeah. And, but these lines in these situations were played off as. Humorous. Except they weren't. Even for me. Even then they weren't funny. This isn't me looking back. In a more enlightened state of mind. Kate was never funny. (laughs) I never thought she was funny. The thing is. I did like Kate better than I liked Ziva. And there were times I actually actively liked Kate. But there were as many times. that I didn't like her. Um. But all those little things they did to make to t- funny lines for Kate to basically all of them targeted at Tony make her seem like an- a horrible person, make her but seem I'm like trying a great rage- sibling rivalry, um, angle because her and Michael Weatherly had zero chemistry, yeah. Um, I think that once they realized that they had zero sexual chemistry, in fact, she had zero sexual chemistry with both Mark Harmon and Michael Weatherly, um, so they killed her, um, and replaced her with somebody who had, and, you know, for, uh, for all that I hate Ziva as a character, the actress actually had a really good chemistry with Michael Weatherly. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... I don't do the character, but the actress herself actually has good chemistry with Michael. So, and I imagine that she was cast with that in mind. And also around this time, they bring in um, a female director who has a past sexual history with Gibbs. I do think they were, yeah, I think they were trying to sex the show up at that time. Kate, the, the actress that played Kate wanted less time on the show. She wanted less work she didn't expect to be killed off she eventually said that in a um in a, in her a, in a interview like much later on like maybe before she did Rizzoli and Isles yeah i uh, i had always heard she wanted off the show but um but sometimes they um they're limited in what they can say We're thinking over here. Um, We talked about Abby and her perpetual state of childhood. Uh, One of the things that I found disconcerting um, during hiatus was Ducky. Ducky was always, before that, uh, a voice of reason and maturity. Um, but during that whole hiatus thing, um, he kind of threw a temper tantrum. And it was really out of place for me. It was like, is that really how they want to play that with him? I know. I never even understood. It. People were so angry that they didn't know about Gibbs personal tragedy. I was like, why is everyone so hostile about this? And I, honestly, I don't really even understand the, um, the fan angst over the you'll do that Gibbs gave Tony as he was leaving. Cause when was Gibbs ever that was practically a love letter from Gibbs. Right. <laughs> so I mean, but the fan Him angst of, the fan angst over the way Gibbs left. Um, I don't I don't actually I have a problem with Gibbs needing time off, which is why when I write around hiatus, Tony doesn't have a problem with it either. Because he just relived the worst trauma of his life. And his memory is in tatters. Why wouldn't and the 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 people he was trying to save got blown up anyway? So why wouldn't he need a break from all of that? You know. Um, what I would say um, with Gibbs and Ducky and their friendship is that a good friend understands that some pain is so private, and a good friend also understands that you're entitled to secrets, and a good friend also knows that they don't have a right to get angry at you for the secrets that you keep that don't impact them personally. Ducky didn't act like a good friend. He acted like a spurned lover. (laughs) How could you not tell me? He might as well have been one of his ex-wives. I mean, it honestly, it's one thing to be a little bit hurt, like, you know, because you can't control what hurts your feelings, right? You don't actually control. But what adults do is they recognize that feelings aren't facts. And they go, okay, my feelings are hurt. It's completely irrational. I'm going to deal with my feelings on my own time. And I'm going to support Gibbs as much as I can until he remembers me. I mean, I don't suggest that Ducky be the next emo blog, but I don't think it would be remiss if Eli was concerned about how close Ducky was to Gibbs. And also how close Tobias is to Gibbs. I mean, he hint, has hint. to be worried about his man bear being around these these attractive, educated men. Hint, hint, Queenie. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> no. I regret nothing, Margaret. <laughs> I, you know, honestly, I, I, seem, I seem to recall earlier. Eli David turned himself into a honey trap and believed it. So, no, I don't think it's a stretch. It's actually, weird. I think the actor that plays Tobias Fornell is actually very attractive. There's something about him that's um, attractive. I mean, he's not traditionally handsome, no, but I think he's attractive. I think David McCallum is too. And especially in, in his day, he was like, "Whoa, Daddy!" Right? <laughs> <laughs> but Tobias, as a character, he's got a good sense of humor. Um, he is um, strong. He's a good father. He's a caring father. He uh, he's open emotionally. Um, and I find all that very attractive. And for the record, I totally ship him and Gibbs. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I do too. I mean, I wouldn't want to write a story focusing on them, but um, like where they're the main characters, but I wouldn't I wouldn't ever have a problem with them being a background pairing in um I just think well I mean I would, it'd have to be a short. I just think I would don't wouldn't, wouldn't actually I think it's like my headcanon that eventually Tobias and Gibbs are gonna um retire together mm-hmm. and live like two grumpy old men the rest of their lives on a boat I don't mind like the again. idea of of Tobias Fornell being supportive of Tony and them like being friends behind the scene I don't mind that tr- kind of sort of s- mini trope but I do find that a lot of times I see it it's like we'll be Tony um you know it, in the I, I'm going to nope out instantly if Tony's wobified I don't care who's who he's who's turning him into giant man-baby. Um, but I've read a couple stories where there's good interaction between the two of them. Well, Fernell and uh, and Gibbs are prime candidates for a wish, baby. Prime candidates. But one of the most vexing canon elements for me about NCIS, oh, as an overall thing, is how, we, well, we talked about they don't let the characters grow, they keep them caricatures, but we're supposed to believe that Tony is, is a really good senior field agent. And yet he's been with Gibbs who's handpicked by Gibbs. And yet his he had a career stall of epic proportions. And what does it say about his character that he is more interested in being on Gibbs team? And actually all of them were, they were so invested in their end dynamics that they were willing to lie and commit crimes for each other. It doesn't actually say anything good about these characters, but I agree. I agree, Hearst. It's supposed to be a sign of his loyalty, except that then what they're saying about what my point is: what does that say about his character? That he is loyal to Gibbs over the job he's there, that the duty he has sworn to to fulfill that doesn't actually say anything good about him. The thing is is that blind loyalty is an obscenity. It is. And also because it was one-sided. Oh, yeah, absolutely it was one-sided. And what it was, basically, is there was Gibbs and then there was everybody else. They were all loyal to Gibbs and not loyal to each other. Right. Yeah, give us an epic back, career stall for Tony. That career stall with Tony is very similar circumstance to what happens with Riker on Star Trek Next Generation. Where he comes in um, as a rising star as Picard's first officer. Um, but because of how long the show lasted. Um, when he had a chance for promotion, he didn't take it. He couldn't take it because he would be off the show. He wouldn't be on the Enterprise anymore, right? They couldn't give him his own ship, so he had to feel conflicted about um, um leaving the Enterprise, um, more than once. And then eventually, like in the movies, he gets his own ship. Eventually, you know, um, that only lasted seven years. If you look at what happens, um, with Tony, it's it's much longer because they're trying to stretch this out, um. And keep his character in place as long as they can, because that's the dynamic of their show, and that cost them Michael Weatherly. This is when they could have moved Gibbs up into a a different role, um, and let Weatherly have, um, well, have you know, have Denozo have the team, and then Gibbs be overseeing the, you know, like what's that role you have rep- um, 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 Wepler in in um, Denozo special agent in charge. So most field offices yeah. have a special agent in charge of the field office, so um it's weird. The uh, that's another thing that's very strange about NCIS canon is the level of involvement the director has directly with the investigations. Like they don't have an entire agency to run. He should be a little bit busier than he is. Now NCIS you know in real life NCIS is a flatter structure than say the FBI but it's because it's smaller right but it is not that flat it is not team leads reporting directly to the director that doesn't make any sense i think michael weatherly left was it the end of season 13 or was it the end of season 14 that he left i want to say it's 13 but you guys probably so let's say it's season 13 um that was 15 years in that position. It'd actually be hard for him to get another job at that point because people would be like, so you actually don't have any actual leadership skills, right? Right? Is that where, where, what we infer from this? You're really good at being Gibbs number two. I'm not sure that that's a selling point. Right. So if he left in season 13, then it's 15 years. So it's just it's just it's just bizarre. That's a long time to go without any kind of promotion. That that implies actually a, a level of incompetence. Yeah. Or it, 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 lack of ambition. Yeah. Gibbs actually probably is too old for field work. Um. The canon age they gave him, yes. Um, They've moved it again. Oh, I'm sure they did. Um, I make him 12 years, I always write him 12 years older than Tony. Partly to reconcile the fact that he should be out of the field, which would make him currently No, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) <laughs> Sixty-eight, I think. You said fifty-eight? Sixty-eight. Sixty-eight. His ass should definitely not still be in the field. In 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 that's in my timeline. Now Canon makes him older than that. Wow. But I, I went I went I went twelve years older than Tony. Um that doesn't make sense. Fifty eight. I guess it'd be fifty eight in my timeline. And field age is what fifty-seven outside of I mean, like special fifty-seven. It's fifty-seven. I think it's fifty-seven as retirement. Like not just leaving the field, but actual retirement. Um, hmm. I think I think I think mandatory retirement age for for field for field agents. Um, is I think it's fifty-seven. Yes, fifty-seven. Um, if they so, have, but this years. also speaks to stalling out for Gibbs's career and McGee's. I mean, McGee hasn't done much either. I mean, it, it looks like McGee just stuck around till he could get Tony's job, which is not exactly the most ambitious path you could take for your career, especially since he, he, it was they talked about him having his eye on the director's chair. Right? That's disgusting canon. I don't see it. Not not at his pace. No. The future of the agency. And we talk about Ziva and her, like, how the fuck did she end up on an investigative team um, when she was basically an assassin? Or she was trained as an, a spy and an assassin. So, and also she legally couldn't have been... It, it wouldn't have been possible for her to give any kind of criminal testimony. Or, I mean, I don't see how she could have um, actually collected the evidence legally either. No. I think, the, I think the evidence collection, you can maybe lampshade it, you know. But... If she if it's done under supervision. But when it comes to anything legal, like her signing off on it, she hasn't had any training. There's no duty oath. There's no um it's nothing. So I, I don't understand. I don't see how she could be part of the chain of custody. I don't see how she could check in evidence. I don't see how she could sign it out. I'm not even sure I understand how she could legally um any her interrogation of a suspect could be legally admissible. She's not actually a law enforcement officer until season seven. So I'm sure by the fit where Jag like goes, you know what? Uh, no. Well dude, I don't and have a good trial gets- scene. What if it all comes <laughs> out? What if it all comes out? There's a savvy defense attorney, right? Yeah, exactly, Ellie. Um, there's a savvy defense attorney that really looks at the team makeup that did that, the that, 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 Maybe one of the one of the defendant makes a comment about um, the lady from Israel, and the defense attorney goes, "Excuse me," and he looks into the team and yep. he realizes that one of the agents who was critically involved with the evidence handling and processing and even interrogating the, the his client is an off, is an officer of Mossad. And he's like, "Oh," and he's not even going to bring that up until they're on the stand. It would be great if it was Gibbs on the stand because then Gibbs could be an arrogant ass about it and tell that guy it was none of his business. Yeah. Although it's my headcanon that, that Jag prefers Tony on the stand as much as possible. Maybe it's after Boxed In and Tony's at home nursing his wound. <laughs> what if it was that doc supervisor that sold out, sold them out in that episode? And it's his defense attorney. Because the doc supervisor, of the guy who was actually with, the, you know, collaborating with terrorists. Um, not somebody you want to get off in the case, but he knew exactly. He had interacted with Gibbs and so he had information about who was in the box. Although Ziva didn't actually do any processing of evidence or anything in that case. No, but she did discharge her weapon at American Citizens. Is she allowed to do that? That's a good question. I'm asking for a friend. Is she allowed to carry a weapon? Yeah, it's 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 true. If the defense attorney calls, um, whoever the defense attorney calls to testify gets, somebody pointed out that if Jag or the defense attorney, if, if the defense attorney calls whoever, be it Gibbs or Ziva or whoever as a witness, Jag doesn't get to deny that but it's but i would imagine very rarely do the defense attorneys m- try to pick which one of the ncis agents is so um if the if the defense attorney wanted gibbs on the stand to question him gibbs would you know they would definitely call him but it's definitely my headcanon that jag prefers tony on the stand that if it's if they're not getting, getting somebody by name that they're going to ask for tony That Tony prefers. That Jag prefers. The person who's. Not going to tell the defense attorney. You know. To fuck off. Um, Or. I imagine that Gibbs is like the worst. um, Witness ever. I don't think even the defense attorney. Would actually want Gibbs on a stand. Most of the time. Because Gibbs would be like. Gibbs has the kind of personality. That jurors would probably like. I mean, when, to- and when and if he tells, well, this you know, this guy was a you know, this guy killed this guy, and he has the kind of of personal personality that, oh, hey, if he says that he killed him, then he must have. He's a nightmare. Yeah, for for the person that they could rattle to get information about Ziva, they could either call Ziva directly because she'd be arrogant enough if they asked, if the defense attorney asked her questions like, um under what authority uh, are you, you know, handling evidence for NCIS? What training did you take? She'd be arrogant enough to think that her answers, her the truth, was sufficient. But I do think, I agree, I do think that if the defense attorney wants somebody they could rattle, they would call McGee. Yeah. But it wouldn't, solve, it wouldn't stop them from, they'd probably ultimately have to call the director to the stand because they'd have to ask the question of somebody who could answer it under what authority is she handling evidence? What training has she had? And nobody on the team outside of Gibbs is competent to answer that question. And if they wouldn't, and even to some degree, the question even is above Gibbs' Gibbs' head, right? Because he didn't pick her; Jenny did. So Jenny would have to answer for that, right? Or Vance, if if Vance was the one in place when the when the when the whole thing went down. Now, wasn't Ziva actually a probationary agent during Boxed In? No. No. She wasn't okay. a probationary agent until Season 7. Okay. Okay. So, she came. She finished her year of probation sometime in Season 8. Because she couldn't become an agent. I don't remember what episode. Because they have the episode where she becomes a U.S. citizen in Season 7. And then in she'd be a year of probation from... She'd then have to go to Fletzi, and then she'd have a year of probation after that. So it's sometime in the fall or winter, early winter, that she would have ended her probation. Yeah, right. Right, Ellie. Because, yeah, it's so easy to become a, to get your citizenship pushed. Which she hadn't even... That was something that came up. Advanced daddy issues. But it could be, and see, that could be a really snarky moment, right? So it's like Tony could go to Ziva and go, you know, now that you're a U.S. citizen, when you send information to Mossad, it's treason. You know that, right? (laughs) I just want to be sure that you understand the situation because I was never really down with them. Actually, I would think that would be a real sticking point for literally anybody that, yeah, okay, so they go and rescue her, right? Which they didn't even know they were rescuing They thought she was dead. They bring her back, and she's her. She's going to get rewarded for lying to them and and stealing classified material. That's what they're going to do. Realistically, that's when Tony should. I mean, it, even if out of all of it, if he's still there at that point, which I don't think is realistic at all, actually. But if he's still there, that's when he should have left. Yes. If he gets all the way through, you know, going to to Israel and then rescuing her silly ass because her daddy um, got tired of her and sacrificed her um, and left her for dead. um, It would seem to me that at that point, um, Tony was like, would be like, no, actually, I'm glad she's alive. But no, I'm mostly glad she's alive, but no. Okay, eventually I'll be happy that she's not dead. Also no. <laughs> <laughs> and the most galling part is after that, after all the shit that she puts him through and threatens to kill him, almost does kill him, shoots him, she still he he still in canon, we're left to assume that he banged her and fathered a, co- a, a child with her. Well, consider the timing of when he fathered a child with her, which was around the time when her father died. I'm going with pity fuck. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, sympathy fuck, you know, I don't know. Out of all the times he took to have some sympathy for somebody, he he chose that one. Why now? Why then? I mean, this whole uh, the whole Ziva plotline is just such a hot mess. I know that there are some things that later in canon that drive us all crazy, but it's really actually really hard to... I've written several Daredevil stories, right? As you guys know, I've written several stories set around or at, at the events of Dead Air. And it's, but it's really hard to explain Tony still being at NCIS at that point in Canon. Um, it's kind of like I it, can it's we it's go just, with blackmail? I mean, is, is that an option? <laughs> because it does get difficult. Yeah. It's like, why is he still there? And what's really, and actually, when I read a story where somebody gives Tony a really supportive, um, like, really supportive people close to him actively, right? Not like just, I wrote him in Catalyst. He and John McGarrett are kind of loosely in touch. They exchange emails and stuff, but this isn't somebody who's involved in his life on a day to day basis. But if you give him somebody like that's involved in his life on a day to day basis that he's talking to all the time, he's got a wide circle of friends who love and support him, and you're setting your story in season eight, nine, 10, it's like, uh, how, how, how does he, j- I don't understand, because it's, it's, the only way I can explain Tony still being there is that he's, he sacrificed everything in his life to work at NCIS to the point that he has nothing but that. And when you're getting all your validation just, from one place, super it's sad. really... It is sad, but it's really hard to let it go when you get all your validation from work, right? And so I think that that's what's going on with him is he's getting all of his validation from that. And he's also getting what limit what, what family dynamic he has is coming from that team. So that's the way I explain it. But when you when you remove that as an issue, when he's not getting his validation from work, when he, his family is outside of the job, why the fuck is he still there? I mean, unless you want to write him um, slowly but surely, yeah. You know, but deep undercover doesn't work because he, he couldn't be psychologically speaking; he could not be undercover that long. It 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 doesn't fly. there'd have to be a purpose and here see when you put somebody undercover for that length of time if you're going to do it there has to be a really compelling reason like this is the only person that we could get into this cartel we can't we can't get anybody else in their place and we can't pull them out because we don't have what we need yet okay but what in the world let's say you've got season eight tony what in the world could he still be doing undercover For that long. I mean, what what event hasn't turned over already, right? Is he there for Gibbs? Is he there watching Gibbs? Why are they investing um why are they investing a a full man resource to just go after Gibbs? Because it can't have been Tom Morrow that he went undercover for. If it was, Tom Morrow's gone. Was he there to investigate Jenny? If so, she's dead. Is it to is it for the Ziva situation? Why the hell? Didn't they do something about her sooner if he was there for her? Is it for Vance? Well, what was he undercover for prior to Vance? I mean, the thing is, all of the players he could be investigating undercover have turned over. Except Gibbs. And you don't put an undercover asset in place to keep an eye on one asshole. I mean, because you don't have to. Because Gibbs is arrogant as fuck. I don't think you really need to invest that kind of manpower in um, getting into Gives' secrets because he'll tell you given enough room right? and he'll tell you to go fuck yourself if you don't like it. right? Actually, I don't think it's as logical as anything Canon did because Canon was Canon made cheap shots and and yeah, sometimes they contradict themselves and stuff but Tony being a long-term undercover asset that's not actually investigating anything is a little little more nonsensical than I think.
1: Yeah, he's not cannabis. even being whored
0: out properly in that idea. <laughs> yeah, except uh, it, it's just psychologically it doesn't make sense. Somebody who's undercover for that length of time doesn't even know who they are anymore. He's not going to be able to maintain any sense of self if he's undercover for f- 8, nine, ten years. It's just... The thing is, if you want Tony to be undercover, set your fucking story in season two or season one. Setting it in season eight or nine or ten, it's just it's crazy cakes. But you also have to change the canon and circumstances of him joining in CIS. If you have him, um, undercover in um the first season, um, because I don't see how he could be undercover if Gibbs recruited him. Unless he's approached during Fletzy, and um, is recruited then, but then why him specifically? Is it about Gibbs? Is it about Morrow? Someone sort up of above that he and there's one story where he's a marine um working undercover at NCIS. Um, Does the Marines have the ability to investigate NCIS like that? Is that in their authority? Because no. it doesn't seem likely. Especially not- since NCIS investigates Marines, not the other way around. I mean, I think it might be interesting to see an NCIS agent in uh, undercover as a Marine. Yeah, we've seen um, it happen with um, uh, NCIS LA. Um, I'm actually, by the way, I'm actually writing that. <laughs> That's how Tony and Rampart meet in the short that I was working on before Rough Trade started. Yay! Is Tony's undercover as a Marine. I'm not mad. But that means that his whole backstory has to be different because if he's recruited into NCIS by Gibbs when he's a cop in Baltimore, that doesn't fly if he's a Marine reporting to SECNAV. And where was he recruited from? So you've changed this whole backstory to have, which they may have. I haven't read the story, so I don't know. Um, and honestly, not interested. Long-term undercover assignments are a hard no for me. I just find them absurd. Um, it, it it's, it's, it's just a case of then all the backstory changes. Okay. So, which is fine if you want to go that route, but it just feels like it's a lot of effort. And I would say to what end? what what does it get you to change his whole backstory and make him a Marine or a a Navy SEAL or whatever and have him be undercover for a decade? Why? Here's the thing about it. There's no way they would put a Navy SEAL undercover. Even if he had been able to get into and become a Navy SEAL in the time period that that would allow, there is no single fucking way that the Navy would let a Navy SEAL languish undercover for 10 years. Even a year is ridiculous. Do you know how much a Navy still costs to train? A lot of money. They're not going to fucking waste their asset like that. You're talking like millions of dollars in military asset right there. But usually what happens is when you see, for me, like I said, I can't speak to this story, but usually what I see is when I see a story that's set later in canon than then the setup, than the plot device warrants. It's because for whatever reason, the author wants to deal with those events in in canon. And the way I would say to to deal with that, to do that, is just mirror the events, but do some original event that mirrors that, right? You don't, if you want to have Ziva and Tim cutting comms, just set up a circumstance in season three where it happens, so that you don't have that extra five years that makes no sense. Or if you want to use the events of dead air, you have Tony come in as a replacement for someone else. That when he was recruited to um, NCIS, let's see, he actually took a different position than one with Gibbs. And then later on when say, what's his name? Stan, what's his name? Stan. Burley. Burley. Um, Maybe he gets shot or maybe he gets another job offer and he goes off. And then Tony, who Gibbs originally wanted to work with, is suddenly available and he needs an SFA. So he brings him in. Unbeknownst to him, Tony's undercover or is asked to investigate Gibbs's team at that point. Yeah. You, you just got to, gotta, if you want to do something with a canon event, although you do have to kind of look at, the ripples, it gets, it's, it gets complicated. It gets complicated. But to me, it is just weird to change Tony's backstory entirely. And then give him like a 10 year undercover assignment. Just to be able to, let's say, deal with the events of dead air. It's like, well, okay. I would probably, if I really wanted him to have a different backstory and somehow he still made it to NCIS, um, and I wanted a cut calm situation. I would just have a different. I would just set, a, set up a different situation earlier in the canon that doesn't have him. Because the, cover for a the thing is, is if they've done it once, they'd do it again. Um, and it maybe even um, Royal woods isn't isn't the first time they've done that to Tony. Maybe they have a history of it, which is suddenly actually more infuriating than I thought when I was formulating that thought in my brain. But honestly, even four or five years undercover is a long time. Because if you're talking about it, you want it to be Ziva and Tim, that's five years. Four and a half, five years. That's a lot. And again, you come back to what end. By that point, you've had a director turnover. So if they really need somebody still undercover in the agency, they're going to need to put somebody else in, right? That's what you do. Yeah, that could be ads that they've done it before and they could, and they Dead Air was just... Well, dead air was, they didn't even get caught. Dead air was when they admitted it because no one did anything about it. Right. But I've never seen that angle. That would be interesting to see, like, that they have a history of it. And this is the first time that, you know, and they admitted it. And um, they start like, somebody starts looking into it, you know, the inspector general's office gets called in. And as it turns out, they have a history of it. And maybe even Ziva would admit it because she's arrogant as fuck. It's, it's never been a problem before. I mean it's never been a problem before? You've done this before? Well, at Mossad... Oh, shut up about Mossad. <laughs> Mossad can suck my ass. And the thing is, if you want if you want to write a long-term undercover story, you go go on, write the long-term undercover. That's not even the point. It's not like, don't do this. But, when we talk about, you know, plot devices or whatever, you've then put an element in your story that is head-tilty. It's like, well, when I tug at this, what does it mean? What is Tony still doing there? Does nobody care about the psychological impact of being undercover for that long? I mean, the Get mental the- exhaustion would be unreal. Yeah. imagine being on on like you know how when you have to fake you're in a good mood <laughs> and it's like you have to do it for 45 minutes to an hour because you don't really want to deal with everybody else's responses to your terrible mood so and then by the time you get finished with it you're fucking exhausted you're completely peopled out now imagine doing that pretty much every single fucking day for 10 years
1: Because going undercover means
0: he has a a different name. He has a different background. He has a different set of parents. His personality may or may not be the same. He's hiding skills. He's probably learned skills for this identity. Um, And he is on basically 24-7 for 10 years. The person he used to be would no longer exist. Now, there's different ways you can. There's different way of types. I will. I will admit there's different types of undercover. And what I, when I say that, what I mean is that, if, um, if let's say he's he his background is all the same as it is in canon, but he actually works for the FBI, right? And they've put him at NCIS, right? So he's being him. But all he's doing is he's reporting things about NCIS back to the special task force, at the FBI. There's no subterfuge other than the fact that behind the scenes, he's kind of seconded to NCIS. He's not living under another name. He's not trying to remember the details, different details with different, different. That's completely different than like a Tony who is, who's actually like a name in the Navy has been sent to undercover into NCIS. And he's got a different background. Maybe he's got a different name. That's different living a different life is a little bit different than just, he's kind of a little bit of a spy. I mean, it would have to be a different name, a different, but because, um, and they would also have to fake his records because, uh, when he gets framed for murder, uh, his DNA will pop twice. Right. So that's a problem. But it's about suspension and disbelief. You have a a set of readers who will read, you know. I had a reader once tell me that they would read my grocery list. I called her on it and put my grocery list in the comment. Then we had like a 30 comment thread conversation about what I was cooking for dinner. (laughs) Because she apparently did read my grocery list. So you do have readers that will read whatever you put out, then you have other readers who'll be like, nah, dog. <laughs> That's not how that works. <laughs> but um it's not to speak to this person's um craft as a writer. Um, it's about suspension of disbelief and what I'm willing to believe going into a story, um, and what I'm willing to read as a reader, and what I'm and what also what I will read as a reader. Doesn't always equal what I'm willing to write. Sometimes I read some crazy, some just plain ass crazy shit that I would not write myself. (laughs) I'm just saying. There's a whole thing on fanfiction.net that if you don't label your story no slash, that people who um, don't read slash will come in and bash a shit out of your story um, for not listing it as no slash. This is an Ao3 story. Oh, okay. Wow, wow. It's <sighs> never so suspension of disbelief issues aside. I, I wouldn't. I <laughs> fanfiction.net doesn't have very good. They didn't used to, you know, they didn't have very good mechanisms to really convey pairing. Um, but when you've got an obviously hit pairing, um obviously on you know, AO3 when you also have the little, you know, category icon that it's it's hit. And yet it's tagged for no slash. <laughs> like you're kidding. You're kidding. Um yeah. Well you whatever. yeah, they, they definitely cut their um teeth on fanfiction.net That is no joke. Um, which is sad and pitiful. Uh but speaking of suspension and disbelief, um, actually I have a story to tell you guys, but I'll tell you off the podcast. Um, but um I think we're going on two and a half hours, so I think we're pretty good on this. If there's anything else you specifically want to talk about. Not me. No, I'm good. Okay. Well no, I wanna no. go ahead. I think we'll we'll lose a good half hour because we did have some long silences. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we We probably did have some very thoughtful scientist silences this time. Um I oh, thank you everybody for sta- for being here and chatting with us during this podcast. Um, we miss you when we do conversations without you because it's really weird to say goodnight to nobody. So we're very glad you're here, and I hope you have a great evening and a fantastic weekend. And say goodnight, Julie. Good night, everyone.